definitions and terms are always important, so it may well be worth our thinking through just here for a moment. This word that gets kicked around a lot, um, evangelism. What are we talking about? There are a lot of technical ways to get at that specific uh, theological dictionaries have, have spent many, many paragraphs upon that simple word, that simple idea. I, I'm going to give you a very simple, boiled-down definition, and it's certainly not one that is unique to me. Some of you, I, I don't doubt, have heard this before. It is. What are we talking about here when we speak of this idea of evangelism? It is, in essence, one beggar telling another beggar where they have found food. One beggar telling another beggar where they have found food. In this case, the food being none other than the bread of life himself, the Lord Jesus. The, the bread who never runs out and always satisfies. That's in essence it. Because we all are beggars, every one of us. That's really what it comes down to for every one of us here. So definitions and terms, they're important. But so too are our ideas and reactions, because I don't know, for instance, I threw that, I should have done maybe like that Rorschach inkblot test. You know, you throw out the word evangelism. What, how do you, viscerally, how do you feel? Definitions and terms are important. So too are reactions and preconceptions. Let me read you a quote. It's in your quotes and notes. It's the one at the top from Jerem Bars, his wonderful book, The Heart of Evangelism. He writes in the, in the very prologue to that book, setting the tone for everything that he's about to say, many Christians are afraid of sermons and seminars on the topic of evangelism. They are afraid because so often they have been made to feel guilty and inadequate about their involvement in making the gospel known. All too frequently, this has not been a spirit-induced sense of guilt and inadequacy that has led consequently to a deeper trust in God, to a growing gratitude for His love, or to transformation in the patterns of one's life. Rather, this has been a humanly induced sense of guilt and inadequacy. It has been paralyzing, and that has driven an even deeper wedge between Christians and unbelievers. I long to see believers set free from this feeling of frustration and failure. In place of this, I pray that the Lord will help believers Realize that evangelism should be an encouraging and even exciting subject to think about and to put into practice. So here's my question. When you figured out at some point since 1045 that the track we were running on this morning was evangelism, how did that strike you? Was the a feeling of anticipation of, oh, this is going to be something that will be encouraging and an exciting subject? Or down within your heart, did you feel something more, honestly, that made feelings of guilt and inadequacy arise? Where are you? Where are you in this? We need to talk about this. We need to think about this. We need to pray about this. So let's do that now. Lord, we ask that you would bless this this study, bless this time, bless this reading and reflection upon your word. Uh, we come to this surely with many of us 
with guilt and preconception or maybe just fear, maybe just offense. Some of us here thinking the, through the idea of presenting something as said to be true, true truth for all concerned. We, we just feel a mixed bag uh, of emotions and thoughts and a storm arises within no few of us here. We pray that you would calm that storm and guide us as only you can. Amen. Let me ask you now to turn in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians is where we're going to look here this morning. Just so you know, by the way, this is the first of a little two-part mini-mini-series uh, we're going to be doing here on the topic of evangelism to, uh, this Sunday and, Lord willing, next Sunday as well. 2 Corinthians is where we're going. If you're trying to find that, that's after the Gospels, then after Acts, then after Romans and 1 Corinthians. Uh, Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 through 6. 1 Corinthians is a great book. I'd encourage you to read that, but that's not where we are today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I was reading an article just this past week entitled, Where Are the Paul Reveres? I won't get into the substance of the article itself, but obviously... That's meant to, to tag into the, the memories, if you remember, of Paul Revere, of that true historical figure, that silversmith, that patriot, um, immortalized in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, The Ride of Paul Revere, and the legendary stature that Revere was brought up to, really, because of that poem. And you remember something of that. You know, one if by land and two if by sea was the, the code the signal that was going to be the lanterns up there in the church steeple as Revere was trying to, to warn the peoples of the coming British forces just prior to the battles of Lexington and, and Concord. One if by land and two if by sea was, was the signal there. The British are coming! The British are coming! He is said to have said as he rode from town to town. Actually, he probably didn't just as a sidelight because he was trying to do all this in secret. So he probably went up from door to door and likely said something like, the regulars are coming, the regulars are coming, but that's not as cool as the first. Anyway, um, point being, messengers. Messengers. If you're a follower of Christ, you are called to be a messenger. That's what it comes down to. Which means, by the way, that you have a message. What is the message? Well, we're told here, even in, in 2 Corinthians 4, the message is the gospel, which literally means good news, which raises a question. Why is it good? What makes this good news good? Two things. One, it's, uh, it's substance, what it is. 
It tells us, on the one hand, we, every man, woman, and child, more guilty, sinful, than we ever dared to fear. Ah, but on the other hand, every one of us in Christ are more loved and cherished than we ever dared to imagine and hope. It's quite a message. That's why it's good news, the substance of the message itself. But there's another reason that why it's so good, and that is its potential. It's like a powder keg. The more you, you take it in, it, it has the power, it has the potential to transform us from the inside out, to change the way that we respond to suffering, troubled relationships, the idols of our day, money, sex, and power, or self-control, or um, ethics, or purpose, or joy. See, it's good news because one of the substance of what the news is, but also its potential to change us, to make us new. Okay, so that's why it's so good. Well, okay, fine, but whose message is this? Where does it come from? Who is this one who has sent us? And it's God. It's God's message. It's, it's God's word. Well, if you pull those two things together, the goodness of this news, what it is, and the reality of the one who sends us with this news, you put those two th things together, and that has some significant implications. You see, because God is the one who is sending us out with his word, God is the one sending us out with his word, we then must be going about this, carrying it forth in his way. God is the one sending us forth with his word. We must then be going forth, taking it forth, going about this in his way, not, not ours. Which, of course, begs the question, what does it mean to say his way? What is his way of then of going forth with this message? Well, that takes us to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4. And uh, here, Paul is in the, the larger context is Paul is speaking of uh, what sustains him, what buoys him, what encourages him in the midst of the troubling circumstances of his ministry. And it is a larger perspective and view that he has on things. And as he unpacks that here in verses 1 through 6, what he gives us is what I'll call a three-legged stool. A three-legged stool that gives us the foundation of evangelism. The three legs, and it's there in your outline, the three legs are this. First, God's sovereignty. Second, our creativity. Third, gospel integrity. These are the three legs of this stool, none of which we dare pull out. They work in tandem together as a team, as a foundations of our biblical foundations for evangelism, God's sovereignty, our creativity, Gospel integrity is what we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, just as a quick aside, by the way, full disclosure, the crux of, the basics of this outline that I just gave you are, um, I got from this a training session with Christianity Explored, this, this course that we're getting into in the next few weeks. They, by the way, from what I can tell, got it from J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. From what I can tell, having read that book, Packer got it from Paul. So I'm pretty, feeling pretty good about this outline. So... Um, okay, here we go. God's sovereignty. Let's look again at verse 6. Verse 6, 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is Paul getting at here? In essence, this message, God alone is the one who can save. God alone is the one who can save. Now, he's, he's clearly some observations here. He's, he's clearly hearkening back here to Genesis, to God's creation. Now, if you're a student of the, the life of the Apostle Paul, you probably can also pick up echoes here in what he is saying of the Damascus Road experience and Jesus appearing to him in this brilliant light that nearly knocked him down to the ground and blinded him. But more, more, he seems to be he's alluding to that. He really seems to be taking us back to Genesis. Ex nihilo, out of nothing comes everything. God, by merely speaking, creates. That being a divine, miraculous work. Okay? And what Paul is doing here is he's trying to help us understand that just as so with the case of creation, ex nihilo, so too with evangelism. Both are a divine, miraculous work. When a man or a woman comes to Jesus and bows the knee before him and says, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. That is every bit a divine, miraculous work as ex nihilo, everything coming from nothing. Where once there was darkness, now there was light. Where once there was deadness, now there is life. Where once there was chaos, now there was peace. That's what Paul's getting at here. The implications of that. The implications of that are, are this, that... that this is a universal reality. It applies to every one of us. Every one of us stands in, in need of, of, in many ways, like, like Jesus coming up to his dear friend, his dead friend, Lazarus, lying in the tomb, and Jesus saying outside that tomb, Lazarus, come out. That's the universal need for every single human being. It's the necessity of God's work. Jesus saves sinners. Now, that's the message. It's also what the messengers have to keep in mind. You understand? Jesus saves sinners. That's the message. But it's also, as the messengers go forward with that message, it's what they have to have in the back of their minds, in the front of their minds, and all through their minds, as they're carrying out this task. Jesus saves sinners. And that's the first leg of our stool. God's Sovereignty, which leaves no room for self-sufficiency, self-dependency, self-reliance. None. None whatsoever. Why? First of all, because that would be delusional. Now, we are all deluded in this. In this. We all suffer from this to some degree. But it's delusional. And because it's delusional, because it's wrong, therein, uh, not surprisingly, it's destructive. To the degree that you think you save sinners that you've got something really, truly to bring to the equation here, then to the, to the degree that you experience success, however you measure that, in the sharing of the faith, you then will take credit for it and find your heart increasingly inflated with pride. But conversely, if you think it's up to you, Jesus and me save sinners, then when things don't go the way that you had hoped, when you fail, whatever that looks like in your mind, now where are you? Despair, distress, disappointment, disillusionment. 
It didn't work. It didn't take. That's, our Lord is calling us but to be faithful. But to be faithful and leave the results in his hands. But wait a minute. There's a follow-up question that needs to be asked here. And Well, wait, but, but doesn't talking about how God's sovereignty in evangelism, doesn't saying that Jesus and Jesus alone saves sinners, doesn't that encourage laziness here? I mean, if he's going to do what he's going to do, what do we have to do? Well, to even ask that question shows a f fundamental failure to understand the point. The sovereignty of God in evangelism, rightly understood, should never encourage laziness. The sovereignty of God in evangelism should encourage boldness. A sense of encouragement and anticipation and hope as to what might be. An understanding of the sovereignty of God in evangelism should encourage patience in his timing as to what he will bring about. The sovereignty of God in evangelism should also encourage prayerfulness as we ask him for wisdom and the words with which to speak and then the work of his spirit in the hearts of people that we care for. That's rightly understood what the sovereignty of God should encourage. Put it this way. Historically speaking, those who have been most convinced of the sovereignty of God in evangelism have been most um, given to the work of evangelism. Classic historical illustration of this, John Calvin. John Calvin and the church in Geneva and the sister churches that they were yoked with back in mid-16th century Europe, Calvin was the most prolific church planter there was in Europe in his day. Calvin, working in conjunction with these other churches, sent missionaries to France, to Italy, to the Netherlands, to Hungary, to Poland. We even have records of at least two missionaries sent across the pond to Brazil. Some biographers will tell you that Calvin was completely taken up in terms of his attention and focus in the last decade of his life with evangelism, church planting, and mission work. Do you see? A right understanding of the sovereignty of God in relation to evangelism should not hamper evangelism, but bolster it, encourage it, embolden it. God sends us forth with his word, you see. We're to do it his way, first leg, first leg of that stool, his sovereignty. Second, our creativity. Let's look again at verses 1 and 5 now. Our creativity what Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Skipping down to verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What is Paul getting at here? That as real and true as the ultimacy of God's rule in this, equally so is our role in this. At the same time, at the same time, now some observations here. There's a task that's been assigned. Paul alludes to this in verse 1. He speaks of a ministry that's been given to him by the mercy of God. He has an assignment. Go do it, Paul. 
In verse 5, he alludes to the something for all of us, a specific role, a message to proclaim, a responsibility to, to do something. Now, what are the implications of this? That, that at, while at the one hand, we have to say, truly, God is sovereign. God rules. He is the one who saves. At the same time, he works through means. He works through means. He works through our efforts, our energies, or what I'll call our creativity. He works. He's going to do this work, but he works through us. Now, if your head's in a spin now at this point, let me tell you why. Because what I've just put before you is what logicians, people who do logic, call an antinomy. That's the technical term. An antinomy. It's one of those things that comes up. No, sorry. It's an, an antinomy. Um, the, the idea being it's an apparent, and I want to stress this word, an apparent contradiction between two things that seem to be in opposition and intention to one another. But I must stress the apparent. It's an apparent contradiction between these two things. Between the reality that God rules and He alone is who saves. And yet at the same time, we are responsible. We are responsible to believe the gospel, also responsible to proclaim the gospel. These two things. Now, the human mind, because we're finite, and our you know, we bump up against the ceiling. We can't go but so high here. We want to protest and say, how can that be? How can that be? To which we have to answer gently, one to another, this follow-up question. How can it not be? How can it not be that we would find things in the Bible that we would not be able to figure out, that would strike us as mysterious? How could it not be? That the, cre that the creator might be a little higher in his understanding of some things than the creature. How could it not be? You see, just because things are incomprehensible to us, does, it does not then therefore follow it is incomprehensible at all and in God's eyes. That's a leap of logic right off the cliff. It does not then follow. It does not then follow at all. And that's the, the second leg of this three-legged stool, our creativity. Why is this important for us to, to keep in mind? Uh, Packer, in that book I alluded to a little while ago, The um, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which, by the way, is, is really good, and I think if you picked it up, you'd enjoy it. Um, Packer writes of the reality that many of us go through what he calls a Copernican revolution. Now, let me back up here. What, what, what is that about? Okay, Copernicus. Copernicus was this guy many years ago who, who established the fact in his observations of the solar system that no, contrary to what a lot of people had been saying for centuries up to that time, the sun does not orbit around the earth, but the earth orbits around the sun, which threw everybody into a tizzy. That was the Copernican revolution. Okay? Okay, so what Packer is saying is a lot of us go through a Copernican revolution. There comes a time in our lives when we realize how man-centered we have been in our thinking. There comes a point in our lives when we realize that we have had God on the margins of how things work instead of at the center. And so we go swing to the other side of things in our view and our understanding of 
It's all God's sovereignty. It's all his rule. It's all his overruling and everything to the exclusion of any understanding of our role, our creativity, our being a means of his rule. So anything that smacks of, anything that smells of our having a role, because it's his rule. And that's a failure to hold in the detention in place. That's a failure to understand the antinomy. That's a failure to keep these things as they are in the Bible. Not resolved. Both at the same time, somehow, and we've got to hold them that way and understand them that way and live that out. His rule, our role. What we don't want to do is this. True story. Uh, from... Um, Oh, late 1700s, there was a meeting of British church leaders. This newly ordained minister stands up in this august gathering to argue for the value of overseas missions, at which point he is shouted down by this elder statesman there in this august gathering of these church officials who interrupts him and says, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Now literally, thank God, that young man did not listen to that man. That man, the younger man, was William Carey, who later went to India, who we now know as the father of modern missions. Thank God Carey did not listen to that man. That man who was not holding it intention. God's rule, our role, let me put it this way, God doesn't give us the assurances of his promises for us to then go and disobey his commands. It doesn't work like that. He does not give us the assurances of his promises for us to then go flaunt and disobey his commands. He gives us the assurances of those promises to fuel our obedience to his commands and assure us as we go, which takes me to the the last point, the third in our three-legged stool, and that is gospel integrity, verses 2 through 4. We have renounced, but we, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is Paul getting at here? That in the midst of everything else that we're doing, everything else that we're saying, we must stay true to the message. And just like I said earlier that we have been given a task, so too, observations, we have been given a message. So there's no need to to wonder, there's no need to guess, we have been given a message. If you want to know what to say, here it is. Um, A specific message, Paul tells us in verse 4, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus... In seeing Jesus, in in understanding the gospel, the gospel is all about Jesus, who he is, the wonder of who he is. Fully God, fully come in the flesh for us, living, dying in our place, that our place might then be secured before him. 
That's the message. Who he is and what it is that he has done and accomplished. The implications, what Paul is saying here. We've been given this message. A message that we must not change. As he says, we must not tamper with it in verse 2. Which, by the way, is a word that was oftentimes used in the setting of, say, like a, a bartender. Messing with the drinks that he was to serve. We are not given the freedom to dilute this message by adding anything to it. Nor are we to distort this message by taking anything away from it. We are to give what we have received. No more, no less, despite the temptations to do so. And those temptations are great. And Paul implies that. He alludes to that even in this text. Because apparently there were some who were doing that. They were changing the message and others were following them. And a growing following, listening to this false gospel in Corinth. In addition to that, there seems to be implied that with this false gospel and other people following it, even as the, the, the church, even as Paul's um, disciples were, were preaching this message and holding true to it, so many were refusing to listen. So you see on both sides you have this temptation to change the message because these other people are changing it, and people like that, they're telling them what their itching ears want to hear. And then there's this pressure over here. No one's listening to us. They don't like what we're proclaiming. They don't like this gospel. And so there's this pressure, there's this temptation, and we cannot change it. We cannot change it. And why is that important? Why do we have to stress that today? Because the temptations haven't gone away. They haven't gone anywhere. The reality of there being heretics, yes, I'll use that word, Heretics who will put forward a false gospel and then have his huge followings and sell lots of books and be on TV and radio and all that stuff. And I won't name names. Ask me at lunch and I'll tell you. So you've got this pressure, this temptation over here. And then you've got the fact that people don't want to hear what we have to say. And what are we saying? Something that goes like this. There is a God that... That, that we are accountable to, who has rights on us, and we have spurned him. Things could have been this way. They were meant to be this way, and they're not. And here's why, because we've turned from him, and that we stand guilty and sinful, and it's the source of all shame and brokenness in this world. But take heart, one has come. He himself has come for us, if we will but bow before him. Now, that sounds like good news to many of you. But for most in this world, that's liver and onions. And worse. <laughs> we have to remember our place. We have to remember our role. We are but stewards given a responsibility to speak. We are ambassadors, but ambassadors, with authority to what we say, but only because who backs us and has sent us forward. We are also heralds, heralds with news. Hear ye, hear ye. But we must go forth with that heralding task, the buzzword today, authenticity and honesty and clarity not 
not tampering with the message. Or as Paul says in verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is God's word that we have to carry forth his way. If I can sum it up this way. The what and the who drives the how. You got that, right? The what and the who drives the how. Okay, let me unpack that. The message we have, the message we bear, and the one who sends us transforms everything but the way we go forth. You got that? The what and the who transforms the how. Let me tell you a little quick story um, that may help with this. My misery, if I can put, no, 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 that's not very good. My, my tension, that was it, my tension, my, my discombobulation in the fall of 1989. On the job front, it, I was a wreck. Um, I'd already done one brief stint, and if you want to ask me about this later, you can. One brief stint as, as a bill collector, um, collecting on, over the phone on delinquent medical bills. Yeah, that was fun. Um, that didn't go well. I was th then later that fall, I, I find myself in a management training program at, at a bookstore. I'll just say it was not what was promised. I'll just sum it up that way. So, so I, I'm not a happy camper. Things, things are not going well on the job front. However, on the personal front, I'm dating, and now I'm engaged because she was crazy enough to say yes. I was dating and now engaged to this woman who's lighting this fire in my heart, making me glad to be alive, and she's working in the nursery right now, so she can't hear this. But, but, so, so you see this, this tension going on in my life. You know, on, on, the, on the job front, I don't want to get out of bed. I mean, seriously, there were some days I'm like, do I have to go? Really? But on the personal front, it's like, woo! Who can I tell today? Well... You see, it's the, the, the what and the who drives the how. So what, what, and what who are we talking about? Um, this message is about a king, about a king who has come back to his land to reclaim it and make it new, and us too. This news is about a young prince come to reclaim, redeem, save the life of his beloved at whatever cost. And it just so happens that we are his beloved. The gospel is about that king. The gospel is about that, that prince. You see, that's the what and that's the who. That's the news we have. That's the spark that should strike within our hearts. He's come for us, you see, and now he is sending us with the message of what he's done. Let's pray together. Lord, the great need of the hour, the great need of this hour, surely is for us to be struck anew with the wonder of that what and who, of the gospel, of the good news, of the substance of this message, of the potential for what it can do in transforming our lives. And we need it. We need to have our sights renewed, our hearts lit aflame anew, if we are going to feel a compulsion 